This is the Disciple Makers Podcast. The following audio comes from the National Disciple Making Forum by Discipleship.org. The theme was Disciple Maker, and Monty Starks from Life on Life Missional Discipleship hosted a track called How to Pursue and Disciple the Heart Like Jesus. Here's the track session from Life on Life Missional Discipleship. We're excited because uh, we're, we're winding down. Anybody wiped after being with us? Yeah, after this emotionally draining, right? Everybody's like, let's not do it more, please. I've cried more in the last 12 hours than I have like 12 years. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, yeah. So for the people who come for the first time, we're sorry. We're not going to go into all that. Everybody's like, oh, praise God. <laughs> Until the end. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, for those that are new, uh, this is Ryan Brown. I'm Monty Starks. Uh, we're pastors at a church called Perimeter Church in Atlanta, Georgia. Um, we, our Life on Life Ministries is out of that church. Uh, we train churches across the world just get back to how Jesus did ministry how he chose a few, invested in a few, and multiplied a few. We had the privilege of working with hundreds of churches in six continents across the world. Uh, Ryan and I travel um, all over the place. We have other team members. We have lay leaders that travel. We have people that we've equipped. I was sharing this yesterday. We equipped eight churches in Brazil how to do life and life, really just simply how to get back to Jesus to ministry, and those eight trained 27, and then they trained 61, and sure, they're training 94 churches in Brazil. The thing I love about that is 80 of those 94 churches have no idea who we are. It's not about us. We're giving it away. It's Jesus' thing, and we just want to point people to it. So we've spent the last four sessions getting after the heart, and what is a biblical heart? What is, um, how, how can we live out of our full hearts? And so if you guys missed that, you can talk to some people in the room and listen to it, but you probably won't get to, I don't think this thing's going to do much for what, what has happened, because we're going to cut out some of the stuff that was uh, personal. We can't just throw that up. You know, we got real with you guys, so, uh, and you got real with us. So we're not going to, we're not recording any of that, by the way. We're, we're editing all that stuff that we engaged some people in the crowd and stuff, because it was personal. Um, but we're going to end this time with an issue that we see across the world, and that is that most people divert to not just not targeting the heart and just dumping knowledge on people, but when they do dump knowledge on people, they create these little behavior, moralist, legalists running around. And I'm talking 80-year-olds or 8-year-olds. It doesn't matter. And so we want to somehow figure out to how to disciple well where we're not creating these little legalists running around, but gospel-centered, grace-centered people. And so Ryan's going to lead us uh, into that today. But if you are here, uh, there's going to be a time for engaging, and so we won't have to teach so much on that, but you'll have a time to engage your hearts on this. All right. Uh, let me open us by, by praying. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you're here right now. Lord, I pray that you would open up our hearts to you and to one another as we continue to see you doing the work of transformation through discipleship. So, Lord, would you speak now, and would we know you better because of this time? We pray in Jesus' name, amen. 
so real quick, I want to start with what legalism is. Um, that word can be thrown all around in different ways. And I want to talk about why in the world does this topic fit in with engaging the heart. Matthew 23, the woes to the Pharisees. You honor me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. But we we can be crafty with our lips, can't we? So there is something about the heart's core beliefs that comes out. We've got to deal with the heart in order to deal with the problem of legalism. So this problem isn't going to go away unless we know how to engage the heart. I personally believe that one of the most toxic things for a discipling movement is legalism. In one or two generations, it will put that movement in the ground. We work with churches all over the world, and time after time after time I've heard, yeah, we tried, we tried a discipling thing 20 years ago, we tried it 10 years ago, we tried it 30 years ago. 30 years ago, but it just got real legalistic, and so so we pulled the plug because it was a toxic ministry in our church. Yikes, right? It's so easy for our discipling to become a list of things to do without a heart that wants to run after Jesus. So, I want to talk about um, understanding how the word of God itself, the way that it's written, draws us to a gospel-centered reading rather than a legalistic thing. And then I want to talk about discipling movements as gospel-centered instead of legalistic. So what is legalism? Legalism at its very core is believing that God will only accept you if you do these certain things for him. That's the very core of it. Now a lot of us, would say, of course I don't believe that. But the way we lead our groups and the way we live our lives kind of sounds a little bit like that, right? Like, I believe God loves me, but I didn't finish my quiet time method this morning, so he's probably a little ticked. That's not the gospel. Right? We, we add these little things to it, and then the people that we're discipling pick up on those things, and in a generation or two down the road, it just becomes the list of what do I do to be accepted by my leader, by the church, and maybe by God himself. But I know I'm not supposed to say it that way, right? Is our orthopraxy what we do matching our orthodoxy what we really claim to believe? So, um, I'm going to say if there are any pastors who study Greek, you're not allowed to answer this first question. All right, so two words, they're, they're verb moods, indicative and imperative. Anybody who's not studied Greek, what do you think indicative might mean about a word? Dictate. Dictate, yeah, yeah, you're getting to the, the core of the word. It's, it's saying what is true. It's, it's a statement of fact. Yeah. We know this one. What is an imperative? A command. So in a sense, indicative, what is true, and imperative, what to do. What is true and what to do. The Bible is written very carefully, inspired by God himself, 
with indicatives and, and imperatives bookending, or uh, with, with indicatives bookending imperatives. So here's an example. Who knows, how does the Ten Commandments begin in Exodus 20? You shall have no other gods before me. Actually, if you start in verse 1, pull out your Bibles or your, your technology devices. Somebody pull it out, and I want you to read it for me. Or I guess I should read it because it's being recorded, right? All right, Exodus 20, verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. That is significant. Why? Because God didn't rescue his people because they obeyed everything perfectly. God rescued his people and then he gave them his law. His people were rescued and then he gives his law to show what it looks like to be God's people in the world. What did the people of Israel do to get rescued by God? They complained a whole lot, right? It is God's grace moving in and rescuing his people. God says, before you even hear this law, remember that I'm the one who rescued you. The indicative comes before the imperatives. Right? God rescues his people and then says, and here's what it looks like to live as my people. The whole Bible looks like this. We're not rescued because we were good enough. We're rescued because while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's the heart of the gospel. So we're not trying to impress God. We can't do that. We never could. (coughs) We're loved by God because God loves us. We're loved by God because He rescued us when we were still His enemies. That has got to be the foundation of how we look at his word and the foundation of how we disciple his people to see ourselves as God's rescued people. The indicative, what is true, always empowers the imperative, what to do. The indicative always empowers the imperative. Think about the the Great Commission, Matthew 28. What's the indicative in the Great Commission, what's true? All power, All power is given to me. And he actually bookends it. What's the last one? I'll be with you. I'll be with you forever. God's saying, it's on my authority, and I'm going to be with you forever. Jesus himself is the ultimate disciple maker. He's doing the work of transformation in people's hearts, and we get to walk alongside him as he does that. We get a front row seat in God's transforming work in people's lives. The imperative. Go make disciples, right? It's sandwiched between these indicatives of what's true, right? God is saying it's on my power and authority that this can even happen. And you don't have to be afraid when you go make disciples because I am with you always. Isn't that amazing? We could look throughout the entire New Testament at, at Paul's letters. Think about Romans. 1 through 11 is primarily indicative. 12 through, 15, 12 through 16, excuse me, is primary. Did I say that backwards? I did. 1 through 11, primarily indicative. 
12 through 16 primarily imperative. Because these things are true about the gospel, here is how we live like it's true. Uh, Galatians 1 through 4, indicative. 5 and 6, imperative. Ephesians 1 through 3, indicative. 4 through 6, imperative. Philippians 1 through 3, indicative. Chapter 4, imperative. Colossians 1 and 2, indicative. 3 through 4, imperative. You're going to see this pattern if you start looking for it over and over and over again. God empowers us to be his people. It's by grace we've been saved. And it's by grace we walk through the Christian life. Uh, The president of the seminary I went to uh, wrote a really powerful book that I can't remember the name of right now because I'm in front of you. What's it called? Holiness by Grace. Uh, In that book, he writes this. I'm going to read a a fairly long passage, but I think it's really helpful. Talking about these concepts in particular, he says this. When the truths of grace began to touch my wife and me, we needed to change the way we talked to our children. I used to say to my son, Colin, because of what you did, you're a bad boy. I would characterize him by his actions. But when I recognize that this is not the way God treats me, the grace that identifies me as God's child is not based on my actions. He characterizes me based on my relationship with him, not on the basis of what I have done. My union with Christ, the indicative of who I am, precedes and motivates my obedience, the imperative. Thus, to treat our children as God treats us, My wife and I put ourselves under the discipline of saying to our son, Colin, don't do that because you're my child. In essence, we urged our son, be what you are, our beloved, rather than do so that you will be my beloved. That changes everything. It absolutely changes everything. We made sure that the imperative rested on the indicative, and that the order was not reversible. As we've attempted to reflect the truths of the gospel in our home, we have assured our children that their relationship with us hinges on the fact that they are our children, not on their conduct. Such assurance does not annul the need for discipline, but it keeps correction from damaging a child's heart or creating doubt about his security in his family. Wow. What would that look like in discipleship? Do you, can you imagine the difference? We obey God because his love compels us. The indicative of who we are in Christ motivates all of the imperatives of Scripture. We live out of the gospel. It is the only empowering and lasting motivation in our lives and in anybody we disciple. So what does that mean for you? It means in your life, you've got to preach the gospel to yourself daily. When you want to believe, God doesn't like me today because I didn't do well enough, you've got to remember that when Jesus said, it is finished, he was dead serious. He died, and he took your sin, and it no longer stands against you. We have to preach ourselves the gospel every day. In our groups, it's not just giving them stuff to do but it's giving them the why. It's rooting what we do on 
who we are in Christ and what he's done on our behalf. 2 Timothy 2, 1 and 2. Most of you are really familiar with that. It is like a staple discipling verse, right? We think, think about that verse all the time. But we mostly start with verse 2, don't we? What does verse 1 say? You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust of faithful men who will also be qualified to teach others. That's four generations of discipleship, right? That's what this whole week is about. Reproducing, multiplying, making disciple makers, but it is founded on being strengthened in God's grace. If our discipleship is not resting on the foundation of the grace of God, then we're discipling in the wrong direction. Um... The core of any spiritual multiplication is grace. We only pass on what we've received by grace, and we pass it on only with grace. Uh, But sometimes we miss grace. Uh, Some of you have really experienced the destruction of a discipling movement in legalism. Um, (laughs) How do we see it in a discipling movement? Uh, a few a few practical ways we'll see it. One is when the what is louder than the why. <laughs> what am I supposed to do speaks a lot louder to our people than why we do it. Uh, we need to have more groups. We need to memorize more scripture. Why? Why do I have to do these things? What motivates me? I'm going to get back into that in just a second. When the tools become the most important part of our movement, I've got to get the method right. I've got to get the tool right. Uh, When we make numbers the primary measurement of our movement instead of maturity, we need more groups. You've got to multiply. I know you've got a lot of stuff going on in your life, but it's time to multiply. We've got to get on it. But we haven't seen heart transformation yet. When we measure maturity by a certain set of disciplines or theological knowledge alone. (laughs) I love this quote. If I've got a ministry like Jesus, it'll probably be made up of 12 people who don't get my illustrations and one of them wants to kill me. (laughs) That's messy. Everybody doesn't look like they've got it all together in that kind of ministry. If you're to look at Jesus' disciples right before he went to the cross, did they have it all together? Hey, can I get a seat next to you when you reign? We had this little argument over who was the best, like on the way to the cross. It's not about keeping up appearances. It's about seeing people's hearts changed in the most deep and honest possible ways. Uh, One other way that you're going to see legalism creeping in is when we make a good idea into a biblical mandate. All right, guilty. Um, When was the printing press invented? Anybody remember? 1500s, yeah. Could you be a good, faithful follower of Christ if you didn't own a Bible? Right, yeah, I mean, all of Israel was in that boat, right? What is it? 
Yeah, it's the first, whole first century. So what does that say about the importance of a specific Bible study method in our discipling? Lazy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that you shouldn't have a good Bible study method to teach people. But I am saying, what is God's command for us? Is it to finish observation, interpretation, application? And then he'll be happy with us? No, God says meditate on my word. At the very core, God's command is to be meditators. I'm going to give people as many tools as I can to help them be good meditators on God's word. But if the tool overpowers what God's called me to, I was having lunch with a guy in my discipleship group last year. And I said, how are you doing? He said, I feel really, really guilty all the time about just about everything. I constantly feel like I'm not doing enough. So I start engaging his heart a little bit. I ask him a few questions uh, about where he feels guilty, what he feels guilty about. And, And it came down to him to, I don't spend enough time with God. I said, well, what does it look like for you to spend time with the Lord? And he, he says, you know, I try, to, I try to read something in the morning, and then maybe I'll listen to the Bible on the way to work, and, and when I've got a break at work, I'll pray and maybe read something. And I'm like, oh my goodness, this, guy, this guy's got a more consistent walk with the Lord than I do in spiritual discipline. So where's this guilt coming from? Well, when I was in high school, I learned that this is how you study the Bible, and he listed all these steps. You see what happened? He was living in guilt that God liked him or didn't like him based on whether he finished his Bible study method steps. I bet that was a great Bible study method. I'm not bashing that method or any method. But the core, the the problem that had happened was that method became the center of how God viewed him. He lost the why. So we had this discussion. I asked him, what does God command you to do? Meditate. What does that look like? And so we talk through that. There's a big difference when those tools, when, when the good ideas of how to apply the word become as important as the word. All right. I'll, yeah. So I got a good question because I went to the seminars before this and I learned how to ask good questions. Uh, yeah. Accountability is a very godly good thing. Mm-hmm. How do, in your experience, how did you hear about or know about bad accountability and how it's done, and and then really how grace-centered accountability should be done? I'm going to come back to that on that point real quick. That's a really good question, though. I want to jump in. Um, Let me tell you my own story real quick with discipling and what I did to people. Um, I... For years, a Bible study method in specific dominated my discipling. This is how you study the Bible. And when you come back to group, you better have some good observations because that's what we're going to talk about the whole time. And we're going to go based on my personality. And we're going to talk about the things that I really think are the most important things for you to hear from me in this group. And then when it comes to accountability, I'm going to ask you the questions that I need to ask you. And you're going to come back with hopefully the right answers. (laughs) I'd say I probably discipled four or five years like that. I 
wore people out. It was exhausting to be in a group like that, myself included. Because my tools were the most important thing. My methods were the most important thing, but the core of what God was calling us to was ignored. I talked about the gospel all the time, but it didn't empower our obedience. It was, here's what the gospel is, and then here's what we're supposed to do, and there was not a connection. There was no why underneath all the what. So, sorry, I love structures. I really love efficiency. (laughs) I don't like stuff that is messy and really difficult. Unfortunately, people (coughs) are not easy. People bring messes. I bring big messes to my groups. I've got a lot of stuff to repent of every week. I am desperately in need of the grace of God. I'm not an efficient, clean machine of of how to get all my spiritual disciplines figured out. So what does that look like to apply grace at the core of our discipling? It's got to show up everywhere. Accountability is one of those places where it absolutely has got to show up. So so in my groups, we memorize a verse every week. That's part of it. So when we come... And, and I'm holding these guys accountable for memorizing your scripture. What I, I kind of do is spin the bottle, but with a marker. So put it on the table, spin the marker, whoever it lands on is going first. And then we'll kind of go around and do our scripture memory. But one thing I've started adding, what did God do in your heart through meditating on his word this week? It wasn't just the task of showing off to everybody in the group that you got your verse done. Or the shame of trying to figure out how to say I didn't do it. What I care about is not necessarily that they got every word right. What I care about is that God is changing their heart as they meditate on his word throughout the week. What we've been talking about with engaging the heart and as people come to own their own choices, own the things that they want to do, I might ask a question, is that something you'd like us to hold you accountable for? It's a closed question and it's a leading question too, but sometimes I just ask it. A lot of times they say, yeah, this is something I really, really want. How does the gospel apply to that? How do you see God's work in your life through what you want to do? So when accountability comes, it's not a time for them to cower in shame. If they failed, I'm going to dump the gospel all over them. Right? Because that's going to motivate them. That's going to be what brings lasting change in their lives. The command in 2 Timothy 2, verse 1, it's in the Greek, be strengthened by grace is called a passive imperative. Something that's passive is something that is done to you. An imperative is something that you're commanded to do. A passive imperative is a really confusing thing. You are commanded to let God do something to you. You are commanded to be strengthened by grace, to let God's grace wash all over you. How do you obey that command? You put yourself in a place where God's grace is poured out. Spiritual disciplines, of course, are one of those things. If I want to get a suntan, I've got to go put myself out in a place where those rays are shining the strongest. 
I want to put myself in the Word. I want to put myself under the preaching of the Gospel weekly. I want to experience the sacraments. Let God's grace wash over you. I want to preach the Gospel to myself daily when I'm struggling to believe it. I need the guys in my group to preach the Gospel to me when I fail again and again and again. Um, before you even begin to think about a multiplying movement, we've got to start by being strengthened by the grace of God in Christ Jesus. We're going to jump into engaging over these things. Monty, is there anything you want to add before? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. No, that's, that's fantastic. Uh, Ryan, uh, you want a sandwich? I do. I'm really hungry. Just like, i got to move that over here. Um, yeah, I would say, um, by the way, um, you guys know, I think uh, I'm in my 27th and 28th year, and I went, of discipling guys, and I went to the guys the first four or five years and asked for their forgiveness. <laughs> I went back and literally met them face to face and say, will you forgive me the way I led you? I led you to perform. I led you to um, make me look good. And so what, what, what's blown away about Ryan said, it's a very biblical thing. When tools trump you loving people, it will equal legalism. Here's the problem is we all need tools. And Ryan knows this and he's done this. There are times when I'll have tools in front of me and you have to be very careful when you do this. Because if we're getting after the heart of people and then being transformed to the image of Christ, and if they're being driven by the tool and they're missing the grace and gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, this is a very wise thing to do, is I burn the curriculum in front of them. Literally. Now you have to be careful where you know you have a bathroom nearby or a trash can. But uh, I, I've literally done that where I, I know that this is it's, it's overwhelming one or two guys in my group. And I literally will fill it out and we'll start through it and I'll just pick it up and just light it. And I'll just burn it. And I say, guys, we are, you guys are being driven by this piece of paper. And guess what? Truth is a person. Truth is a person. I want them to fall in love with truth. That is a person. His name is Jesus. I don't want them... We are so sometimes so driven by a tool of the written word that we miss the living word. Tools are powerful. They're good. You have to have them. But as he said, if that becomes your driving force, you've missed the gospel. And guess what, guys? I think a lot of us, including us, have led people to miss the gospel. And therefore, we have legalists running around. So uh, Ryan's going to set us up to engage one another, and we're going to put the questions up. And you can engage a stranger next to you. It doesn't matter. Just turn and engage. And if you've done this for the first time, you want to set this up if, yeah. if people have? Okay, that's yeah, great. Yeah. Um, so if you've not been to any of our sessions, I'm sorry. This may be a little strange for you. Uh, we've been talking about being made in the image of God and living from our whole heart. And our heart speaks to the whole person. And we talked about our heart being four areas. Our thoughts, our feelings, our deep desires, and our choices. 
And so the four questions we're going to ask are around those things to get down to the core of our hearts and our deep desires. Um, we're going to engage around a passage of scripture this time. So if you've got a Bible or a, uh, your electronic thing or whatever it is, go ahead and pull it out. And flip over to Titus 2. Titus chapter 2. Again, before we jump in this, I, I want to tie all this back together. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ changes anybody's hearts. And so if we are focusing just on behaviors, we're not going to see heart transformation. We have got to see God change people's hearts through the gospel. And this whole tool we've been doing for the last two days is a great instrument to get down into the hearts of people and connect it to the gospel. Okay, so that's why we said all this to close our session out. So, Titus 2, verses 11 to 14. I'm going to read it, and then we're going to walk through the four questions. And then if you've been here, you've been through all of our stuff, feel free to take some training wheels off, drill down on the desire a little bit, ask some more open and powerful questions. So I'll read this, and then we'll pair up and give you plenty of time to engage over this. All right. Titus 2, 11 through 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So pair up and engage one another. If you're here for the first time and you don't know what to do, you can come up to us and we can help you. You're so welcome. Okay. Um, I'm going to do a little something. Well, yeah, shoot, I don't know which one to do first. Um, how, again, don't tell me about Titus chapter 2. Don't tell me about your deep desires. What was it like to either be asked or to ask? What was that experience like? Scary. Scary. Awesome. In what way? So, as you were having that fear to be vulnerable, but those guys did draw that out of you, how did that make you feel? Yes. Thank you for your vulnerability right now. And mentioning <coughs> the death of your parents. Don't even know how to go back because they're not alive to go back. Thank you for being vulnerable even to share that right now. And I think there's a lot of people in the room that will go, wow, I want to go back. But I also want to battle with you 
in that process. Thank you. Wow. That, I mean, just authentic community happening in real community. And that is hard stuff, but it's, I think what Paul talks that we, we suffer in the death of Christ. And those are the things that just like life was brought because of life and death, or excuse me, the death of Christ was brought life. This Paul talks about in Philippians 3, uh, uh, 1 Corinthians 4, that we have to go through that suffering that there might be life on the other end. The interesting thing about it is we might not see it until the other end. Save it now! Save it now! God's plan might be to save it today. Might be healing. Might be renewed. Might be reconciliation. Or not. But we know we have a Savior who will never leave us, forsake us, and His grace is pouring upon us. So thank you for sharing that. It's powerful. Thank you. I know you, you guys have all become best friends today. <laughs> These guys have all met sitting around. <laughs> so now, let, let me kind of just based upon time, we got to what? Okay, great. For those that have been here for three of the tracks or four of the tracks, been here most, I want to ask you a big question. How would you experience it? Yeah. So, freedom, revelation, just not aware of what's being opened up. And again, we didn't put any magic dust or anything in the water or anything. Just, just living out of our full hearts, creating the image of God and asking powerful questions. Yes. Community. We had Christian community here today, didn't And today we not, but it was beautiful. There's some guys in this room that, you know, share some stuff for the first time because of all our 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 PhDs in our counseling. We don't have any of that. This is not counseling. This is normal Christian community. If people again need help, get them professional counseling. And we all do in a way, right? This is a way just to ask a few questions, just know what the God is doing down in a soul, and it creates community. If you start doing this, especially in discipleship, but you could do this in other areas in your church, it'll radically change your church. Yes. It really will radically change your church. Yes, sir. Wow. Slow down, phone down, and great hope for your church in the lobby that people would connect real Christian community. Wow. I don't know why I was even coming to this class. Uh, Where's our... Hold on, we'll come to you. Where's uh, our brother sitting right here that has the daughter... We're together. I'm bowing with you, man. You're, hey, you're a great dad. <laughs> God is at work. We didn't do anything. We just gave an environment and a tool or two for God to open up. For God to speak, and so we could listen. 
God's already at work, right? He's already speaking. We just have an ability for us to listen and hear the power of the Gospel. And therefore, as Ryan said, tools are great. They're fantastic. Truth is a person. And guess what we're trying to do? We're not trying in discipleship to get groups to be multiplied. That's a result. We're not trying to get groups to have like numbers in groups. That's a result. We're trying to see people become little Christs, as C.S. Lewis. To live out of their full hearts like Jesus and to experience the power of the Spirit, the power of the Gospel. So, don't treat your people like an object. Treat them as a daughter of the King. As a son of the Redeemer. That's pursuing the heart. That's engaging the heart. Why don't we spend this last few minutes in prayer. And if we would, I'd like uh, for Ryan and I uh, both to pray. Um, and uh, Ryan, you can close this out. I'll begin. And it's just been a joy and honor to be with you guys. It has really has. Thank you. Uh, thank you. Thank you. Heavenly Father, Jesus Christ and Holy Spirit, You, three and one, one and three, before the foundation of the world, lived in community forever. You modeled for us what it means to be one. And in the most powerful prayer by Jesus on this earth in John 17, He says, O Lord, Heavenly Father, as we are one, may our people be one. So we are one with You because of Your finished work, Jesus. Because of Your perfect life, death, resurrection, ascension, now mediating for us, interceding for us at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, in human form, as we read in Colossians 2, that You are the great King. And so, we trust in Your righteousness that we have been imputed with. And as Ryan reminded us, as You, Heavenly Father, look upon us, You see the perfection of Your Son. You see us as holy and blameless before Your sight. Because we have been put on the clothes of Jesus. We've been washed by His blood. And so, Father, help us to live as the hearts created in Your image. To live out of fully in community in the body of Christ. Oh, would churches be changed? Would our church be changed? Would you start with us to live it out slowly? Would we see revival happen because we live in Christian community? Maybe for once. Father, help us to take the risks to be vulnerable, not just to show our junk, but to be vulnerable to take the risk to be changed in the image of Jesus. To be engaged, to be heard, to be loved as we're created to be loved. So God, help us. And we know that you will. Because you're coming after us. 
you're coming after us. You love us so much, you don't want us to remain the same. You're changing us day in and day out. And Father, when we can't see it, when we can't feel it, when we don't know it's there, help us put our trust and hope in the great promises that every promise is yes in Jesus Christ. And we pray it in His name. Heavenly Father, we are, we are not here because we've got it all together. Hmm. We're here because we're Yours. And Lord, I thank You that it is safe to not have it all together with Your people. Because we come in need. We don't come as healthy. We come to the great physician. The only one who can heal our hearts. And Lord, you've called us all to invest our lives in other people. Lord, we would long that they would see Jesus in us. So Lord, would they be imitators of us as we are imitators of you. But Lord, would they also see our repentance? Would they see our brokenness? Would they see our need? And when they see your grace worked out in our lives, that we would find healing in the gospel, and that it would point others to find healing in the gospel. So Lord, we pray with David, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory because of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Lord, this is all for you. Would you blow us away by the way that you change lives, <coughs> marriages, families, parenting, businesses, neighborhoods, because we're willing to give our lives to a few. Do far more than we could ask or imagine. We pray all this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. You've been listening to the Disciple Makers Podcast. That message was from Life on Life Missional Discipleships track called How to Pursue and Disciple the Heart Like Jesus from the National Disciple Making Forum. You'll find dozens of other great discipleship resources like this podcast at discipleship.org. May the Lord bless you as you seek to grow as a disciple maker.